you're listening to the Degrees of Freedom podcast. Conversations about higher education in the 21st century between students and teachers. Produced at the University of Groningen. Welcome to another episode of Degrees of Freedom. This is the third of this uh, season, I think. I'm here with Marcello in the podcasting studio again. And um, today we have a topic that has been on our minds for quite a while. And the impetus for recording this episode is uh, a conference that is being organized at the beginning of December in the University of Groningen, an open conference, a free conference, open to uh, students, scientists, the public, everybody, on the topic of truth and science communication. The conference is called Nothing But The Truth. It is on December 7th and 8th. We'll include a link in the podcast description as always. And its aims are to talk about what we in academia and in science uh, think of when we talk about this idea of truth and how we share this truth or these multiple truths with each other, with the public, with politicians, uh, with policymakers, with industry and um, everybody else. So the topic today is... Um, uh, societal trust or public trust in science and this sharing of this truth. And uh, to discuss this topic with us, we have two new guests uh, that we're very excited to talk to. Uh, Leah Henderson, uh, uh, who is in the philosophy department. I want to call you a philosopher of science, Leah, but I know you're also a physicist. Yes, uh, well, originally I was, but I have changed into a philosopher now. So There you go. Uh, Leia holds a special chair in societal trust at the University of Groningen. And alongside Leia is Leonie de Jonge, who is a uh, political scientist at the Faculty of Arts in, uh, in the University of Groningen. Welcome, Leonie. Thanks. And welcome, Marcello. I've been talking ceaselessly and I haven't even uh, let you say hello yet. Hello. <laughs> okay. With this very short round of introductions out of the way, let's dive right into the topic. I wanted to ask you, and uh, I'll start with you, Leah, let's define our concept. I guess this is good philosophy or good discussion in the first place. When we talk about public trust in science, are we referring... So what do we mean by trust and what do we mean by science? And specifically on this, I mean, do we talk about science as this method, the scientific method... Do we talk about science as the people who are involved in this, the scientists themselves? Or are we talking about the industry of science, the academy, the, um, all of the associated industries, publishing, grants, etc., uh, etc.? Et yes, well, um, trust, I think, is, is quite deeply connected with reliance on other people and with cooperation. So we are relying on other people all the time, all our joint projects rely on other people. Um, and, of course, the other people can let us down, right? So they don't do the task that they were given. They don't fulfill the role that they were given. But we can't be checking up on everybody that we rely on all the time. And so we have to trust them. So I take a sort of preliminary definition of trust to be a kind of unquestioning reliance on other people to do something. And, of course, one of the things that we rely on other people to do is to get a picture of how the world is. 
And so we have to trust what other people tell us. And when it starts to get complicated or when it starts to get onto specialist territory, then the people that we're looking for are scientists. So that's how I would think of uh, trust in science. Um, so I think with a definition like unquestioning, unquestioning reliance or re relatively unquestioning reliance, um, it can actually apply to all the things that you mentioned. You know, you can have um, perhaps not so much the method idea, um, but you can certainly trust the scientists, meaning you rely on them without questioning them too much. Um, you can have sort of trust between institutions if they rely on each other smoothly um, and without, you know, getting tangled up in a whole lot of difficulties. So, yeah, maybe that gets us going. Leonie, maybe I can uh, uh, bring you into this as a political scientist. Um, how does that sound to you? Yeah, I mean, it's so nice to speak to an expert who uh, thinks about these questions quite a lot. I often get confronted with the fact that um, we live in an area of post-truth, right, ever since Brexit and Trump, and the fact that political science is not actually a science, right? So I often get... Um, uh, confronted with uh, people from the general public also because I work on topics that are potentially polarizing or um, emotionally difficult to deal with, uh, such as populism, such as the far right, such as extremism, where people have very heavy emotions towards. And then I'm uh, flown in as an expert to, as a scientist, to comment based on my research. And I've really learned to stay very close to my own area of expertise uh, and to also emphasize that political science is also a science, even though it is not uh, something like Marcello does, for instance, which is quite measurable and related to numbers per se. I'm making assumptions about your work, <laughs> but I'm thinking about math as more of the pure science and political science is something that, uh, yeah, it is, is very difficult because it, it, you also engage in a social realm and a political realm where your, your input is often politicized. So I think we will also talk a bit about that today, right? About how that interaction between scientists, science, knowledge production, and then broader society uh, interferes. So where do we stand? Do people trust science? What do we know about this? Well, that's a difficult question to answer in, in general terms. And part, part of the reason why it's difficult is because you have to have some way to determine what you mean by trust in science. But it's certainly something that people are doing empirical work on to track differences in trust in science over time. You have to rely quite often on just asking people simply that question, do you trust science? And that can sometimes be a little bit general um, to get a really meaningful answer. I think what we can see are areas where distrust in science has come to the fore and then that becomes quite noticeable. Right, Trust is one of these things where you don't tend to notice it if it's all going well. Um, but there are these kind of contested areas in science, um, particularly, I guess, recently uh, vaccine science, but also overwhelmingly climate science. Is there a, a reason for this change uh, that is clear? Like, is it uh, an issue from our stance that we are not able to communicate clearly with people? 
is it an issue because this um, two disciplines touch uh, our life in a way that can be substantial and so they um, they heat up very powerful emotions is it because for uh, clicking and money reason uh, journals websites politicians even abuse uh, or abused distrust in their own uh, interests do we have an idea is it perhaps all of them more mm. i mean i can just broadly say something from my uh, research but i think leah is the more the expert on this but i think in general um when we talk about the post-truth era right that's really since brexit and trump although you can question to what extent it's really a new phenomenon that there has been an increasing tendency to distrust expertise. We saw during the pandemic, which was quite interesting, that um, there was a, a sort of a, a shift in at the beginning of the pandemic where people tended to have this thirst for knowledge. And there was, in fact, a, a, a reemergence of the expert or um, to, a, to the extent where there were headlines saying, is this the end of populism? Um, are we going back to trusting the experts? But that didn't last very long. And partly uh, because there is so much information, there is disinformation and misinformation, and there are also agents that um, fuel this sort of distrust. And I think uh, these are agents that I focus on in my research that um, make a trade out of uh, disseminating distrust um, in institutions uh, more generally, and uh, part of those institutions, you can say that it's politics, um, but that is also sometimes science. So in the Netherlands, uh, we recently have had um, studies uh, by the security services being published saying that there is a rise of what they call anti-institutional extremism. And then what they talk about is the reason they broaden it. It's not just anti-government extremism, it's really distrust in institutions more broadly because it includes journalists it includes also scientists more often than not politicians people who work for the government but it's much broader than just the government so all of this is to say that there is a tendency to um yeah to 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 increasingly question um uh, expertise that's not always a bad thing i would say because this also means that people have become emancipated, more educated, that they are critical. And I think that's in and of itself a very positive thing. But yes, the, there is a tipping point where um, I, I think uh, it is important that there is still some trust in institutions, in politics, in experts, in science. Um, otherwise, we might as well close the door. Yeah, I think I, I think I really agree with what you're saying there, especially about the the role of disinformation and misinformation, because I think there's a bit of a tendency to think of uh, the relationship between people and the experts as just you know there's us and and then those experts, but there's this entire ecosystem. There's this huge interface in between, which, as you said, involves all the journalists, all kinds of um, advisory bodies, um, various institutions. And we also just have other parties with vested interests, like uh, interfering in in the communication. Um, you know, because you know, I mean, public relations has become a real art and science of its own, and it's very powerful, and it can really take hold in the kind of me media system that we have. Um, so I think this is one of the main undermining forces for. 
trust in specific areas of science. Maybe we just to add on this, and at the risk of derailing the conversation already a bit too fast, but I just thought about the fact that we as scientists have also maybe a little role to play in um, maybe the distrust in that, uh, not that we are responsible for it, but we have left the ivory tower, right? We do increasingly uh, science communication. People cannot see this, but Tassos is looking very <laughs> skeptical. Tassos thinks we're still in the ivory tower. But I think in general, would you agree that we have moved towards more focus on impact, valorization, um, also communicating with the general public? And there's also this thing called citizen science, right, where we are now um, increasingly seeing science communication no longer as a one-way street, but a, a dialogue, a two-way mm-hmm. communication Um, which I think in general is a very good thing, don't get me wrong. But with that, we also see that increasingly experts talk about stuff they actually are not experts on. And I think that um, is um, actually a misuse of your academic freedom, right? To also talk about stuff you're not actually an expert on. Which I'm something, uh, yeah, which is something that I'm very conscious about and careful about and not to agree to talk on uh, any, uh, yeah, just about anything. I hear what you're saying, Leonie. In what you said about getting a little bit sidetracked, let me move us back one topic. As I was preparing for this uh, podcast, my attitude is very closely mirrored to what you were saying, that you know, all of these buzzwords, we live in a post-truth era, trust in science has deteriorated, climate change, anti-vaccine movements, um, the number of kids becoming sick or even dying because of uh, lower vaccination rates compared to 20 years ago is an issue, etc., etc. It, And I thought, let me do some research on this a little bit. And um, as you said, Leah, um, it, it's very difficult to know what uh, the levels of trust are. But there is some information that perhaps uh, we can trust a little bit. One of the things that I found from this country is uh, research from the Rathenau Institute conducted on four moments uh, between 2012 and 2021, so sort of straddling the pandemic. And the simple question is, uh, how much do you trust certain institutions? And these institutions were science, uh, courts of law, uh, newspapers, government, uh, uh, corporations, television, uh, technology industries, etc., etc. A couple of themes that emerged very simply are, still, science remains the most trusted institution, Major corporations remain the least trusted institutions. Courts of law are close second to science. The interesting thing, the thing that I would never have guessed, is that in fact trust in all institutions in this country, in the Netherlands, increased during the pandemic. During between the years of 2015, 18 and 21, trust in almost all institutions, but certainly science, increased. The effects were not huge but fairly reliable. This of course could mean all kinds of things. It could mean that um, um, the fact that we managed to go through a very intense global crisis within the span of maybe a couple of years, maybe that bred a certain degree of confidence in the structures around us. But certainly it didn't seem to me that the the picture was as bleak as I as I feared it would be. Yeah, I think that when when you are in a crisis situation, that is actually often where this need to rely on other people and to do so in a more unquestioning way really comes to the fore. But I guess as the 
I mean, the, the kinds of results that you're talking about from the rationale are averages, I think. And so, I mean, one of the things that we saw over the course of the pandemic as well is that a sort of development of distrust, even among a very small group of people, um, can actually come to have quite an impact. So by the end of the pandemic, we're struggling with what to do about small minorities who don't want to get vaccinated and this kind of thing. So, yeah, so I think we, we need to look also, when we look to see how well trust is working, we need to actually do more than just ask people, actually, like, you know, what is your trust? We need to look more generally at how how the how this cooperation and reliance is working. And a breakdown in trust can also look like a situation where uh, some sort of process is just not working because uh, this, there's a lot of questioning. It's a contradiction that these figures indicate an increase in trust and yet we have all of these behaviours that you're describing. And unless um, there is an increase in trust in average, as you were saying, but the two extremes actually have gotten mm. bigger. So there is a very blind trust that have gotten much bigger and there is a very blind distrust that has gotten uh, perhaps slightly smaller but more uh, to the extremes and then in average we see that there is an increase but the dialogue becomes harder and I if I think about my worries my worries is exactly the this progressive lack of dialogue and increase in fights perhaps is because the biggest picture that I see is seen through the eyes of social media I don't know about the research on this, but this is true that the polarization has gotten worse, or even in that case, the polarization has remained more or less the same. And uh, if it has gotten worse, is there anything we can do to actually try to reverse this trend? It's a great question. <laughs> polarization, I think, is another black box of um, just like trust is a black box, right? When you start open the Pandora's box, you see it's it's kind of often related to all sorts of different other tangential fields and terms. And um, I think it's important to unpack that. So exactly what you just did to us to bring in the numbers to say, okay, we're talking about the post-truth era and a distrust in science. Is that actually true? How do you measure that? The same with polarization. There is something called effective polarization. So that the, um, the, uh, yeah, the, the, um, emotions between certain political camps have gone up. Um, there is indeed uh, often talk about the rise of polarization, but yeah, this is a, I would say, yet another black box of um, um, various terms that that we can describe. Also, often said in one breath with the rise of populism and extremism, social unrest, distrust. These things are often, yeah, always kind of bundled together. And I think it's absolutely true to say that we observed such a phenomenon that we see it more manifested either through the prism of social media or on the streets protests um, through individuals um, who yeah, refuse to vaccinate or yeah, small individuals can do a lot of damage in this um, these sorts of situations at the same time it is good to bear in mind that the Netherlands historically is a high-trust society. I mean, when it comes to politics in the 90s, we forget this, but it was like North Korea-like figures, right? Nine, almost 90% of the people trusted uh, politicians and institutions. And so I think overall, we're still doing quite good in this. Um, and I'm also quite reassured to hear that science 
is um, particularly uh, still trusted. I don't know what Leah has to uh, add to uh, yeah the question of polarization. Yeah, I think that um, going back to one of the things that really drives polarization, I think is this uh, is often disinformation. And then what's going on is that you have a particular group, perhaps it's a company with a vested interest in something, trying to resist uh, things perhaps that have been found scientifically, trying to put a sort of alternative reality in people's minds. And so there's a huge amount of work going in and a huge amount of money going in all the time to trying to polarise people, trying to push people into different camps and in particular trying to move people into camps which are you know, more convenient for these uh, vested interests. So this is one of the things that I think in order to overcome polarisation, we need to take on. And how exactly to do that is very difficult. I mean, at a sort of immediate level, you want to equip people to recognise when they're being played, right? To see this disinformation like uh, around them. Um, but... It also is something that works under certain conditions, and there's a, there's a lot of psychological understanding increasingly about what makes these alternatives attractive to people. Um, and in order to remove the sort of attractions, I think you have to go a lot deeper. Then you're looking at, you know, uh, sort of uh, as often traumatic experiences or deeply felt inequality, deeply felt exclusion. And those things, I think, have to be tackled much more broadly uh, by looking at the, you know, the whole uh, situation in society. So the question of polarisation is pretty difficult, I think, overcoming it. I actually have another question that comes back to what you were saying earlier about trust. And also the fact that we might have a big bunch of people that trust science per se, kind of blindly. Also, one of the bases of the scientific method is questioning, right? So our research is made by proving some... Well, mathematics is a bit different because a proof is a proof, but in any case, it's about checking the proof if it works. But in other sciences, about we have some results, we are interpreting them, and then uh, are our interpretation uh, the right one? Uh, have we missed something? So it's about questioning and uh, discussing those questions and figuring out uh, where the truth lies because it's probably some still grey area while you're exploring it and you need to find uh, uh, the correct uh, middle where the truth really lies. Yes. And uh, if we are trusting or mistrusting without accepting any dialogue or... Uh, without posing any question, then I would fear that it goes completely against the idea that we are trying to push here, that there are things that we know, there are things we don't know, there are things that we think we know, and the whole point is having a dialogue over them and push them so that we can figure out what we really know and understand. Yes, I, I mean, that's right, that science is based on questioning, it always has uncertainties, it always has doubts in it. Uh, but one of the things that's also really important is to recognise the extent to which you should be questioning and doubting in particular situations. And you can go wrong in both directions, right? So you can, you can uh, doubt and question too little, but you can also do it too much. And what often happens when you have a party who's interested in uh, 
pushing you towards an alternative uh, point of view, they will try to generate questions in your mind that go well beyond anything that's inherent in the science itself. These are manufactured questions. This is manufactured doubt. And that's something that we really need to be careful about. Um, It's not against the sort of underlying principles of the scientific method to reject that kind of doubt. Mm -hmm. What we need is people to to be sensitive to uh, looking at how much we should doubt, not always saying, oh, it's an ideal to be questioning the whole time. That, that's not a sensible ideal. It's impossible for us to do that. We don't have time. Even the society as a whole doesn't have time to be questioning everything all the time. Yeah, yeah it makes perfect sense. You At some point, you need to trust somebody to do the, that artwork for you. But then uh, the question is, do we as educators have a space for to, to teach and to explore for ourselves and for other people? Because I think we are not good at doing it either if we are outside our comfort zone. Uh, well, uh, how actually, to question. I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. I mean, I think that is what, what we are educating all the time in the university, is the ability to think proportionately reasonably one of the things we try to do for people is to have them think about complex issues to deal with complexity um, to realize that they don't know everything but still that trust is needed in some situations to to be sort of uh, aware that your attention can get distracted to small things uh, and to try and resist that urge all those things I think is what we're teaching in the classroom all the time no matter what subject in the university, these are things. This is what we're doing. I mean, when you when you teach in the humanities a text, you're teaching people to be sensitive to different framings, to different interpretations. Um, you know, in in other parts of the university, different kinds of critical skills are being taught. But it's all important, and I think that that is what is helping to produce what we really do want: are people who can think in a reasonable balanced kind of way i think thanks and uh, is there a good way for us to also reach out of the university walls and then uh, do the same kind of dialogue with people that do not interact with the university environment well that kind of assumes that the responsibility for doing that lies with the people in academia and as i said before i think we do have to pay more attention to this whole interface which is between academia and the public, all the journalists, all the intermediaries, those are the people whose whose job it is in a way to do this communication. It's primarily, and they have a lot of expertise in doing that, though that's their job, right? So th- actually that's where I think we need to look for answers to those, those questions. I find it striking to hear you say there that we should question whether this is the responsibility of um, science to take on this role mostly because this isn't the prevalent or this isn't what i understand to be the prevalent view among science communicators or or science as a field Uh, leonie earlier suggested that we have left the ivory tower i think you're right we have left it more than we did before but proportional to the voices that exists around people i think perhaps we may be 
less so than before. I don't know. I don't have any facts on this, but mm-hmm. this is my impression. You also said earlier, Leo, that uh, indeed institutions have vested interests. Uh, journalists or journalism, it, one of its main characteristics is that they're for-profit organizations or many uh, fields of journalism are for-profit organizations and certainly the ones that are very powerful. So I'd like to question this idea that it isn't the societal role of science to to be at the forefront of bridging this gap, not just philosophically, and I think I would contest this philosophically, but also pragmatically in the sense that, well, leaving it in the hands of journalists, politicians, industry, etc., does not seem to be working, and there are a lot of pitfalls there. So why would we not take the initiative on this? Why would we not be in the forefront of science communication and setting what this agenda is? It's helpful for us as a as an industry, if you like, but also as a, as an institution of knowledge and with our principles and our values, but also because it will help our agenda of improving understanding of the scientific method and the, the fruits of the scientific method, including vaccines and climate um, uh, work, etc. Yeah, well, I didn't want to say that, that you know, the scientific community have no role. Um, I just wanted, indeed, to sort of redress this balance, as you as you said, you know, that there does tend to be a bit of a focus on the responsibility of the scientists, but they are really not the only parties involved and not the professionals who are trained to do it. So I, that was the main uh, point that I wanted to make there. Um, but also, I mean... The recognition that the scientists in the scientific community do have other roles as well. They're, you know, they're employed to do research and teaching, and you know, outreach is a part or can be a part of a scientist's work, but it's always a bit at ex- at the expense of their research and teaching time. A pe- person's time is not unlimited, so I think. Uh, you know, it, it can be nice to say, oh, well, the scientists should take more of a role. But without the resources to enable that, that can actually be quite a demanding um, thing. Which is not to say that, like, it's not really great when some scientists do take that role. Like, I find when I'm dealing with, uh, so I teach you about um, philosophy of climate change. And there are often the kinds of questions that you have and disentangling all the disinformation requires that you do have a bit of uh, understanding of the technicalities and the scientific uh, basis of, of what's being said. And then it's super helpful if you have cl- some particular climate scientists who've come out and written a book and spoken directly to the public. That is very helpful. But I think the idea that, you know this should just be sort of regular for every scientist, that sort of, it's not realistic, I feel. And so um, so that is a bit why I want to refocus the question towards, well, wait a minute, there are all these other actors uh, who are involved, and we do need to look really hard at, you know, the kinds of practices that go on in journalism. We need to look very hard at... How do scientific advisory bodies work when they're informing policymakers? 
there's uh, there's a lot there which is easy to overlook i think so perhaps one of the better ways of uh, using these resources is also to form alliances with these um, other institutions that you talk about journalism etc because you're right aligning our our goals will make this work more powerful without the necessity for every individual scientist to be out there blogging and uh, yes. being in panels, which is certainly not what I think would be a good idea. And there, I think I talk about science as as the as the field or the academy in general, putting resources, as you say, in this endeavor rather than every individual person doing it in a piecemeal way. But I think we have this uh, then here an institutional problem in the sense that this suggests that the diversification at the institutional level is actually important here. So that not not expecting everybody being a jack, a jack of all trades and being able to do everything and have enough time to do everything, but uh, saying that some people are good at communicating with other people and then uh, we want to empower them to do it more. Some people are good at attracting money and writing grants, so we want to empower them to do that more. Some people are good at teaching, so we want to empower them to spend more time there, and then have a diverse pool of people that that diverse job and interact together and allow us to interact with society, with students, with research bodies, and uh, with each other in different way by uh, building on this diversity instead. Which is, I suppose, what in this country is the rewards and recognitions program. Yeah, it's just important that that doesn't... Uh, I, I, I think the spirit behind that is very positive, but it is important that it, of course, doesn't turn into a checklist for making sure that everybody does everything again. So mm-hmm. that's I, uh, a danger I can see. Yeah, but I do think there is a responsibility. It's maybe, yes, a shared responsibility, but I do think there is a responsibility for every scientist to at least be able to say in a few words, in layman's terms, what we're working on as a basis, whether or not we spend a lot of time on that uh, uh, and whether we have a responsibility to also continuously engage with public debates, I think that is point two. And then what what you said about aligning with journalists, I think that that is also a very slippery slope to go down, especially because there is this conspiracy that... uh, there is um, a, a globalist elite uh, which uh, is in cahoots, um, and that is often journalists, scientists, politicians, right? That we're sort of part of that. I think there is so it should be some sort of like a Chinese wall between these different trades. Um, that yes, there are there are science communication um, journalists, right? That focus mm-hmm. on that, but really to uh, align forces, I think, is something that I would be very cautious. Thank you. Thank you for pointing this out. I think uh, in my uh, in my naive vocabulary, I think what I was thinking is improving channels of communication yeah. rather than, you know, joining forces towards yeah. some particular goal like... Um, I figured that that's what you meant. But, but I, just uh, I appreciate to, yeah. being called on this. So I feel the urge to say a couple of things. First, to talk about briefly nothing but the truth again, because a lot of the themes that were talked about, disinformation, the spread of conspiracy theories and misinformation is a, is a key part of what the talks in the, and the workshops in this conference are going to be about. Also, climate outreach. Uh, Leah, I know that you're going to have um, uh, some really interesting conversations with some of the guests in the, um, and the speakers in the conference. We have people who are who have for many, many years dealt with climate outreach efforts and all of these uh, tensions are important. So I urge listeners from all all fields of work to sign up for the conference. It's, uh, it's open to everybody. 
Leonie, you talked about political science being a science. My question is, is science itself political? I think everything is political. And of course, I'm a political scientist, so we tend to say this. Um, but I also think that you can um, engage in public debates based on scientific knowledge that you have accumulated and produced in your academic research, infuse it in public debates without being opinionated. Um, whether or not that is still political, yes, I think so, because everything is political. But I think it's this is something that I often run into, that when I um, talk about my research in the public, when I uh, talk about my research on populist radical right parties, for instance, that uh, there is a backlash from certain um, groups within society who then say, you are selling your own opinion as science. And that is something that I am very um, much pushing against, that there is a clear distinction when I'm talking as a person with opinions about things and when I am a scientist and talking as a political scientist about political debates. And that is a there is a really thick wall there, which in other fields might be more obvious. In my field also is there. And I always make that clear, for instance, when I'm interviewed, that I say my research shows that rather than I think that or it's my opinion that, right? I'm very, very careful in the exact phrasing that I use when I talk to journalists to overemphasize that this is information that I have from scientific research. Um, of course, there is a whole black box behind that about, okay, who decides on the type of research questions. Um, uh, and that, of course, that to some extent, I think, is politicized in that we have um, one party family, um, which since the 80s has gained some traction, the far right party family, for instance, which now is getting way more attention than any other party families, even though they are still a marginal force overall. So I think there are some questions there to be asked. But with regards to your first question, I think um, uh, it is possible to um, infuse political science analysis into a d debate without being political. But who then politicizes it is question two, right? It, it is often then afterwards politicized by uh, the same agents we talked about before who have vested interests in politicizing those debates. Can I ask the same question also about education? Is then education political? I, I think everything is political. I mean, maybe we can ask the question of what do we mean by political yeah. first of all, because I think this is an important distinction. For me, politics is any discussion about matters that relate to society and the the function and endeavors of society essentially and from that point of view i agree with you everything is political our mathematics is not some kind of detached endeavor completely outside of the of the personal or the social interests of of a community and i, I would say the same thing is true for education which is the i suppose the dissemination part of knowledge rather than production would uh, are we broadly in agreement on this or it, can we bring some disagreements on this, which I would very much welcome. My question would also be, why does it matter? Why does it matter whether uh, whether education or science is political? Well, maybe I can answer this in the, in the way that we often, both in education matters, but also in discussing the outcome of science, we often take this detached 
quote-unquote objective position that these are facts, mm. these are truths, and we sort of wash our hands clean yeah, of what implications I, these might have. I'm actually not sure that that is what we do. I mean, I think um, we we also present the evidence, we explain why we think that those things are true and false. I don't think we typically do go around like just saying, this is the truth, believe it, please. I agree, uh, and I think that that is actually... Uh, a problem sometimes because the media does not do that the media often tries to say here are just a bunch of facts and we our role is to just bring these facts to the people for them to then decide what's like important or not or right or wrong and i think as scientists we are often super careful in how because science is complex there is often not just one you know just a truth there is often just well degrees of freedom in the answers that we have that we generate and i think that that is sometimes problematic because uh, when you talk to journalists they want quick and cut cookie cut answers that are either yes or no right or wrong and often the truth is that it's very complex and complicated and there are various ways to answer questions and that i think um can become politicized in and of itself so that um uh, the way in which those complex and complicated answers, nuanced answers, there's no room for that often in a public debate. And uh, going back to the previous point, this education political uh, or what it means to be political, I think the issue is here terminology because the first time, uh, sometimes ago, I, I read that education is political. In my mind, this was swapped with politicized. Yeah. And then I couldn't come to terms with that. And I think we have to be also careful in this sense with the word we use because it might be that we have something in mind, but the perception of what we are saying is actually different mm. from what we mean. In addition to the fact that very often our words are taken, uh, made it so make it sound something else and something more precise and concrete, and then they are absolutely meaningless compared to what we wanted to say. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that there are all those issues in communication with journalists, but coming back to the question about education, I feel like those sorts of things are not so much of an issue in that context. And there, I think what we are doing is, uh, you know, trying to teach students about complex problems, explaining the evidence for and against different things that you might say, trying to get them to think about them in a nuanced way. I think this is this is what we're doing every day when we're teaching students. Yeah, and I think we try to also um, teach them in to think analytically about problems and not on a normative base. So this is something that I often run into in when teaching about politics because it is, by definition, political and politicized. Students bring their opinions to class and their emotions and everything that comes with that. And one thing that we work on in our classrooms is to talk about complex issues leaving out these normative um, of course there's room for normative debates as well but um, that in their essays for instance students learn to write about um, uh, topics such as uh, political parties or conflicts in society in an analytical way and that in fact also helps the debate because it diffuses it in some sense it takes out some of the emotional load um, what people think about certain parties uh, to actually say well why do they say these things and what are they actually saying and that yeah. I think helps and I think um, I think in philosophy it's a little different because we do actually often explicitly discuss the normative mm. but then what we require is an argument to be given for the position that you take so um, 
it's not it's not okay to just sort of you know shout the position as loudly as possible you have to you know explain why you think it and what we're teaching all the time is you know how do you how do you engage with somebody who doesn't agree with you um what what are you going to say and then by thinking through all that you often might discover that there's a weakness in the way you're thinking about it and you need to adjust and so that's also all part of the you know learning um, that goes on may i ask a, a basic question yes can we define what we mean by analytical and normative in this context well i was I, I i maybe i'll defer to you to explain what you mean by analytic since you were using that um term but when i was saying normative i was meaning you know questions about what what we should be doing what we should be thinking those are explicitly philosophical questions and we don't like shy away from those in philosophy um i think in other disciplines maybe you you do try to sort of minimize a bit there um and focus a bit more on descriptive questions so you know what's actually the case what do we yeah i think it is indeed this distinction between uh, analytical would be uh, why does a party have a certain stance and then the normative question would be is that a good or a bad thing i think i should correct myself in that we do engage with these normative questions but oftentimes i find that students uh, and not just students right also we all do this that we Uh, answer these questions by um, your gut feeling by saying this is wrong and then what we do in the classroom is indeed even if it is a normative um, stance to build arguments to explain where you're coming from and to indeed build an argument on why you you say that this is a good thing or that we should um, advocate for uh, I don't know more electric cars in the streets or Um, so that that uh, I think that distinction is maybe important to make. But my my point was more that oftentimes we um, we reason emotionally rather than uh, analytically, and that in the classroom we try to actually bring these two um, t- to together, so to kind of park or kind of explore a bit why we have certain emotions towards questions, and then delve into what's the underlying argument behind this. What you're saying is uh, quite nice and interesting, but it's highlighting to me an important point that is the need to have time to reflect on uh, on whatever you want to di- dialogue and uh, debate about. So in my impression, again, so this may be wrong, is that in many of the debates and the dialogues we are having, we come from very partial view that we got by hearing people shouting reading titles and subtitles perhaps of articles and uh, basically cementifying whatever idea we have with these headlines mm. and then uh, we arrive there with this cemented and fixed idea and there is no scope for uh, for any reasoning while if we stop down we, we do the analytic thinking that you said we look at the problem from different point of views we try to put ourselves in the shoes of whoever is thinking differently and we try to understand what is going on not just because of our gut feelings but actually trying to see what is really going on um, perhaps we can start having healthier debates but then this requires times and reflection yeah i think first of all gut feeling is not necessarily a bad thing i think that's also an interesting thing and also i think in classrooms we often tend to put away with that but i think it's important to actually carve out space to deal with the emotive side of things the emotions the gut feelings i don't want to put that away 
But what you say about time, I think that is crucial and key that much of the issues that we've discussed in this uh, in, in this past hour have to do with the fact that we are pushed by 24-hour news cycles that also scientists are often pressed for time. I am now pressed for time, right? So that we are always in a rush that I think that is a big risk that we, uh, and I mean, we, we can talk now about work pressure and about working conditions. I think one thing that... Um, I think is crucial that we don't do enough is slow science is actually taking time to think about the problems and to actually sit and think um, uh, that is something that in science I think is a problem time is such a luxury we are always especially because we're trying to do all the things from teaching the research to outreach that the science bit the actual thinking part is the hardest the time to reflect to sit and reflect and weigh that is something that um, also because we're always like applying for a new grant and uh, doing a new research project time and to reflect slow science mm -hmm. is something that is crucial and of course if we in the in the academic world don't have that how could we expect the outside world to have that i think i think but this is exactly why we need trust right because we don't have time to be always checking about everything so we need to trust, but we need to trust in a good way. And what does that mean? It means we need to trust when, when the party that's being trusted is trustworthy and not when they're not, right? So we have to have a good calibration between trust and trustworthiness. And so we need to be, you know, we have a limited amount of time. We have a limited amount of energy available to do checking up on things. We need to deploy that checking up in the places where the biggest risks exist. Um, and I think that's, um, I think that also goes along with this sort of idea of trying to educate towards a proportional way of thinking where you, you, you might not get hung up on one particular risk but realise that there's a trade-off and a balance between risks and then put your efforts where the risks lie. So that's how I think the two topics actually kind of come together a little bit, that we're educating towards a sort of balanced assessment of risks, which also then allows us to determine where we should place our trust and where we should be distrustful. Thank you for these last comments. Uh, I've really appreciated this discussion in that I've slightly changed my mind on a number of things and I take that to always be a good marker of a, of a discussion to make space for rethinking one's assumptions and uh, understandings. Lernie, Leah, thank you very much for being on Degrees of Freedom. I hope to, to see you at the Nothing But The Truth conference in a, in a month. Marcello, Truth. This is, uh, I guess, what we talk about a lot when it comes to education, how to share an understanding of the tools and uh, the, the discourse for uh, understanding truth. And um, I'm happy we had this discussion today. Yes, I, uh, it's fantastic how many things you never thought about before and, and how much you can get by such a short discussion. So thank you very much for this. Thank you for... Uh, Thank you. Accepting Thank to come you. here, actually, and expose yourself on this rather delicate topic. Thanks. And thank you to our audience for sticking with us one more time. And um, we'll see you in the usual places on uh, social media and uh, on the next episode. 
This podcast was a production of the University of Groningen.